0: You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are, or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to MedSLPCollective.com forward slash summit to register today.
1: This is episode 200 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast. Guys, this is episode 200. How exciting. Uh, Today's guest is Monica Sampson. She is the Director of Healthcare Services and Speech-Language Pathology at ASHA. Monica has had a diverse career spanning clinical service delivery, research, academia, and health policy. At ASHA, she has made it a strategic priority for her team to support medical SLPs across the continuum of care, to improve patient outcomes via interprofessional practice, and to drive person-centered care via a variety of service delivery models. And I thought Monica would just be the most perfect person to have for our 200th episode She has so much good information to share about things that we just don't even know that Asha has available to offer us. So I really thought it was a wonderful episode. I'm so grateful to her for coming on and I hope you all enjoy it. And thank you for listening to 200 episodes of the Swallow Your Pride podcast. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut... Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Monica. Thank you. Good morning. How are you? Good. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Awesome. I'm so excited to chat with you today. So um, if people don't know,
2: tell the people a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Um, I'm Monica Sampson. I serve as Ashes Director of Healthcare Services and Speech-Language Pathology. Um, it's a really long title to say <laughs> that I lead a team uh, that supports SLPs who practice in healthcare settings. And um We're one of three teams within SLP practices unit at ASHA, Um, and we have another group of my colleagues who work on behalf of school-based SLPs, and uh, we have a third team that supports uh, private practitioners and EI providers, early intervention providers. So, we're one amongst many, and um, uh, I have two other SLPs on my team. And uh, they come from a background in adult geriatric care. One of them comes from adult geriatric care and management. Um, and another comes from pediatric and acute care. And I have a background in skilled nursing. And that's where a majority of my career has been. My clinical career has been. And I've done clinical service delivery. I've done management there. Um, I've also been in research and academia, and now I do a mix of everything here at ASHA.
1: Awesome. 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 Yeah. That's what I was going to ask is, you know, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit more about your background, because I think that's important. I think, you know, a lot of people have these, I don't know how these, you know, myths get created, but it's like, is anybody in ASHA even a speech pathologist? You know, I'm like, yeah, you guys. Yep. Yep. We, we do actually have some pretty experienced clinicians that, that work for ASHA. So yeah, and, yeah. I'd love for you to set the record. Straight.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we, you know, um, we kind of the SLP unit, uh, and we have a parallel audiology, unit as well. That's where majority of the clinicians are housed within ASHA. Um, We also have our clinicians within the Office of Multicultural Affairs. There are four of us there. We um, also have SLPs and audiologists within the National Center for Evidence-Based Practice, NSEP. Uh, So we're infused within a lot of other units. Um, And of course, as with any business, there are also business experts to run their own units um, where, where we serve as consultants. But we are kind of the heart of all things clinical that happens at Asha. Beautiful. Awesome. All right. Um, so, yeah, I, where should we start? Let's talk. Let's kick it off with the practice portal. Yeah, would love to. And uh, we're really excited that the updates went live it's been a couple months now. Uh, it's been a long time coming, uh, but a couple of months now. And um, you know, as far as uh, we've seen, the majority of the feedback we've received um, has been very positive. And I'll kind of hit on a couple big highlights of uh, the changes that we included there. Um, and I think the most impactful one, at least from my perspective, is uh, how we describe assessment of. Adult dysphagia, and while a lot of the same concepts existed in the previous iteration, I think there was a need for us to be pretty clear and um, emphatic in stating that comprehensive assessment includes both instrumental and non-instrumental assessments, and um, instrumental assessments were made to be an add-on; it wasn't supplemental, and It doesn't necessarily have to come after non-instrumental or clinical bedside. So we wanted to give it the rightful spot that it needed to have. A big thing throughout the practice portal, this page as well as other pages, is Kind of going back to the evidence, directing members back to the evidence to say, um, let's think this through. Yes, there are always going to be exceptions because evidence-based practice is not just the research part of it. Mm -hmm. It is informed by clinical experience. It's informed by patient preference. Um, But at the end of the day, let's start with the evidence and let's check it out. So it, it was also a call to us clinicians who were working on it to examine what's out there and how can we frame this differently in a way our clinicians can best use it for self-advocacy as well.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I think every clinician everywhere is thanking you times a million because I, I I really, I truly feel like for as long as I've been a part of ASHA, as long as I've been a part of the speech or been a speech pathologist, it seems like we finally got to the heart of the matter and we finally got ASHA to, to support us and say things that clinically we've been seeing. Um, And so thank you for doing that, because I think for a long time, we felt like Asha sort of skirted around some issues and and said sort of some gray area things that just sounded nice and fluffy and they weren't really completely supportive. So thank you for that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know, um, like I said, one of the things that motivates me and my team is that we've been on the other side of providing clinical services, um, and actually up until recently, pre-COVID, I would still go in to the gym to practice, right? And then you get a sense of how what you say when I on my Monday to Friday job impacts what I do when I walk into the clinic. And you know, you can only test policies when you start implementing them. And yes, you, it's very well-meaning to be to take a neutral position where we want to embrace as much, as many opinions as possible. But I think where we lead with is we want clinicians to make their own decisions. But I think we can help facilitate that process and call things out like they are, especially if it's going to advance the science as well as change practice. Um, so we realized we could absolutely clarify our language and um, change not just our clinician's practice, but how administrators view our requests for instrumental assessment. Yes, is what does what ASHES say make or break everything for an administrator? Maybe, maybe not. But we want to make sure our clinicians have the strongest tools at their disposal. And if this can facilitate it, we want to do it.
1: Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Let me ask, because I, I genuinely don't know the answer to this as well as other SLPs. Is this something that did you get pushback from higher up in Asha when you approach them about we want to be bold with these statements? Was it, I guess, what what did that look like, you know, from quote unquote Mother Asha's perspective?
2: <laughs> <laughs> um so I'll talk through a little bit of what what goes into a practice portal. And I also realized I completely forgot to mention that we have SLPs and audiologists within our practice portal team as well. And they kind of direct the process. They're project managers, if you will. Um, So, when we're looking at updating a pretty robust page like the dysphagia one that was massive, uh, we look at not just what's written in the page. We look at all of our dysphagia resources, identify what needs to be updated, what language needs to be changed. And it, it typically starts with a review of our evidence maps, which guide everything we say within the portal. And as you can imagine, while the science and evidence have gotten stronger and have advanced, there isn't much that has changed in support or against instrumental assessments, right? I mean, we clearly found their benefits. Last time we wrote the page, we still find their benefits. This time we wrote the page. So where we landed as a team was uh, in talking to subject matter experts, both clinical and research, was really the need around clarifying language. It's not so much about what we were saying. It's about how we were saying it that would make a difference for our readers. So we, we... Took the evidence, we took subject matter feedback, we've heard from members who use this resource and advocacy. And uh, we went up to our leadership to have a discussion. And um, they said, well, as long as you can make it accurate and make sure that we're still not being prescriptive. So we want to be careful. And it's a very thin line to walk because you can't, you know. I would never want to tell a clinician this is what you must do for every patient because that reduces us to technicians and doesn't include our skilled decision making. So we wanted to put the strongest position out there that supports the needs of the clinicians, but we wanted to finesse it with the fact that you still ought to weigh all of the factors that that go into that clinical decision making. Um, So And hence, it doesn't say you should have an instrumental assessment, but if you claim your assessment as comprehensive, these are the components that need to be there. So, um, you know, the process itself was uh, pretty seamless because the team that went in to make that argument was uh, very well prepared with with all of the pieces of the puzzle that we needed to, to make that change happen.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you. I know SLPs, I can say that on behalf of lots of them. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So,
2: <laughs> <laughs> appreciate hearing that. And um, we realize that the practice portal is never intended to be policy, it's not prescriptive, it's not even clinical practice guidelines, right? Um, and we know some other associations have clinical practice guidelines. We don't at this point. And um, we want to be still cautious and intentional with how we frame things, because they can be interpreted as ASHA's policy on the other end of uh, at the end user level. So um, we want to still provide good guidance and help commissions along the way. Right. Well, and, and I think that was such the hard part for so
1: long was that it, it almost seemed like administrators would use it against us you know, well, what's Ash's stance? Well, Ash is pretty gray about it. Okay. Well then it's a gray issue and your issue is a non-issue, you know? And so I'm glad that, that you were able to, to sort of meet it halfway. And I, and I think the practice portal does exactly what it claims to do. I think it's so very helpful. I think, you know, a lot of clinicians just need a place to start, you know, and I, and I think it gives them that place to start. so I, I remember when I, you know, took some time to actually go through it. I was like, this is just, this is wonderful. This is just what clinicians need to give them that, you know, that start. So
2: Exactly. And you're right. It is a comprehensive starting point that encourages them to dig deeper because until you actually dig deeper to look for your specific answer, you're not going to find it because it lays everything out there. And it's a big switch from how we used to have things. I and mean, we had technical reports and Policy documents and um, things like that, and we wanted that practice portal came about because we wanted everything related to clinical practice we housed in one space. Gotcha. Um, and also, historically, the policy documents were created by ad hoc committees. So you'd pull a committee together, they came together, they wrote it, edited it. So it was a long, drawn out process. And it wasn't sort of a living, breathing resource. Um, so to edit a policy document meant that you went through the whole process again, went all the way up to the board. And I think clinical practice and science evolves at a much faster pace than that. Um, so now, you know, when we get feedback from clinicians that say, "Hey, you didn't get this right," or "We feel there's a disconnect," or "You know, it's not serving us the way you intended it to be." Um, it's a much quicker fix than going through a committee appointment and edits.
1: Awesome. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, because I know there was a few technical reports that I was like, gosh, these were so good, and I, I missed not having access to them. But on the flip side, I experienced that as well. Like, oh crud! Well, this one's sort of outdated. And I did have that conversation with somebody, and they're like, "Well, can you imagine the red tape that would have to go through with Asha to get this updated and and you know all that?" Yeah. And I was like, "Oh gosh, okay, yeah, now I
2: understand." <laughs> <laughs> so, so thank you. That I that's
1: that's wonderful. So,
2: so we also have uh, the other thing I wanted to add to it was um, uh, we have evaluation templates that live as a resource within the practice portal so they have also been edited to align with the terminology that we've used and um just conceptually with what's stated within the portal uh and uh, they've also been revised to adopt like it'sy terminology for diet levels and all of that they are they're done they're going through editorial review so they should go live uh on the website soon as well
1: cool awesome awesome
2: how, how do you guys and this is just my own
1: my own question I guess, how do you guys let clinicians know when these sort of updates and things are made? You know, because I just feel like a lot of times I land upon them and I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't even know this happened or someone else will mention it. And I'm like, crud. Yeah, yeah."
2: I know. Um, And, you know, that's our website's a beast. I will be the First to admit, uh, I search on the website to access resources pretty much like every other person on the planet. So um, we generally our means of dissemination is there's usually it goes up on social media uh, okay. and also we push it out on the ASHA Now newsletter. So the Ashenow Now newsletter has curated content that's specific to the areas of practice. So we have one that's very school-based-ish. Um, there's one that's healthcare-specific. And uh, then there's one that's um, more for those in academia and research. So the the announcements will always be kind of top of the line in the ASHA Now newsletter as well. Now, the other resources, sort of like when we update assessment protocols, for example, those don't always make it out on our social media announcements. They typically end up in the Ash newsletter for really no rhyme or reason other than the social media feed is pretty packed. Um, but we uh, the other way, um, that is through one-on-one um, communication because we uh, significant portion of our job um, here is to have one-on-one consultations with ASHA members. So, um, whether that's to brainstorm to clinical or professional issues, we uh, talk it through, we provide resources, we come alongside them. And so, a lot of our resources that are topic-specific get shared and used most in those one-on-one communications. Because, I mean, I'll admit we get a ton of emails. We and we get a ton of emails from ASHA, so uh, you know we pay attention to not overwhelming our members with a ton of information, but uh, we recognize that some of these alerts get missed. Definitely, yeah, yeah. Well,
1: thank you. So I think that's helpful too to know that usually we'll find it in the ASHA Now newsletter. So yeah, because I will I'll flag that in my email because I know I just get so many emails from just different, you know, just from doing company sponsorship stuff, like all sorts of different things. And it's like, I can't just, you know, I, I want to filter out the ones that I really need to know about. So cool. Awesome.
2: yeah. We, we are working on parallel updates to the pediatric dysphagia page, which has a, which has some elements taken from the adult dysphagia page, but also it includes the feeding and, uh, the feeding and swallowing components that, um, it definitely have to give a different flavor to the pediatric dysphagia page, but those updates are in the works and I know that the team's pretty close to being done. So those should go live in the next couple of months too.
1: Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Look forward to seeing those. Yeah. So let's, let's switch gears here. Mm-hmm. Um, changing healthcare landscape. Where should we start there?
2: <laughs> oh, there's no start. There is certainly no end. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's uh, the truth. Uh, yeah. And, and I think it kind of ties to what we were talking about within the context of the practice portal, which is um, using policy to inform practice and using practice to inform policy. In in this case, policy goes beyond organizational or professional practice policy. It just goes to reimbursement policies and um, how advocacy helps direct policy, channel it more towards where we want it to be. But, you know, if there's one thing that's been constant within healthcare, at least over the last couple of decades, it's been change, And <laughs> uh, we have a lot more to come. And um, and I'm not sure how familiar people are with how our advocacy efforts are set up within Ashes. So, I'll kind of kick it off with that. Um, we have a pretty robust advocacy team. So we have a Capitol Hill office uh, where we have a healthcare lobbyist, we have education lobbyist, um, we have someone who runs our PAC or political action committee, um, and we have someone who leads that entire unit. So we do have a Capitol Hill office and we very actively advocate on issues there. We uh, also have a national office staff that we have someone who's entirely dedicated to Medicare reimbursement, a person who only does Medicaid reimbursement. Um, We have someone who oversees private payers. And uh, we have an entire unit that's devoted to state-based issues. That's everything from licensure to um, the interstate compact to, um, you know, like, Telepractice laws, um, so all of that, and then we have an advocacy communications team that it's communications at all levels. It's grass grassroots, grass top, grass tops advocacy. It's all of our communications related to it. So uh, it's a pretty robust team, and uh, we we as SLPs and audiologists within ASHA interface very closely with them to guide policy, and a lot of our advocacy efforts are rooted in members communicating to us exactly what they need to better serve patients and students. So there is a government affairs and public policy board that um, made up of volunteer members uh, of ASHA who establish ASHA's public policy agenda. And there's also usually an open call for review and feedback. Um, to inform the to inform ASHA's public policy agenda so um, we actively try to influence the change in the healthcare landscape rather than react to adapting to it so a good example is pdpm the patient-driven payment model that went live October 2019 it's it's been, couple of decades in the making but definitely over the last five years um, me along with several other volunteers um, have attended and met with Ashes uh, uh, with CMS staff we provided comments and by the way every co- policy that we comment on, every comment letter we send to any agency, any public official is on Ashes website. So, you can track, yeah, you can track literally every single thing that's done. Uh, So, we were at the table through all of the iterations of PDPM. And every time it was tested, we were there to provide input. But, you know, the thing to recognize is we're one of the players who are at the table, and there's still a finite pot of money. So, it's Finding ways to make sure our interests are represented and met, uh, while acknowledging that there has to be a little bit of give and take to make sure that funds are appropriately diverted to our needs. So that that's that's how the process evolves. So in PDPM's case, they uh, have something called technical expert panels or TEPs um, that are based that have representation from different fields, they usually put an open call and we submit nominees. They represent... You think the current version of the minimum data set, the MDS, is less than desirable? You should have seen where we started with. Yes. So, oh, you know, it's like, <laughs> if you all hate the BIMs, we hate the BIMs. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, it doesn't tell us very much about cognition. So, we we continue to represent exactly those pain points. And um, the other thing to also note is when something goes live like PDPM, it's not the end point, right? There's always revisions to it. It's a long process as with anything related to the government. Um, So, we, we get data, we look at the data. CMS has way more data than they ever disclose to us. So, every single data point, every single piece of documentation and billing that is submitted drives policy, not now, but typically five to ten years down the line. So, um, tying it back to the portal page and the concepts there, so use of instrumental assessments, right? So, now, if you have a whole bunch of clinicians using instrumental assessments, usage of that code goes up, right? So, that now, there's somebody out there analyzing every code usage. Uh, Again, going back to that finite pot of money, they want to make sure that we're all being good stewards and there isn't a fraud and abuse to the system. So, when that code, when a code gets flagged as increased usage, what ends up happening is there's a review of, well, what exactly is going on, what settings, what, Payers uh, are using this, and is it appropriate use? When the, We have someone within ASHA whose only job is coding. Um, and uh, so, when she gets the request, we end up working with the American Medical Association, who actually forms and values all of the code sets. It's not CMS. It's not a payer. AMA does it. Crazy. So, we have a seat at the table, and um, make sure they're appropriately valued. And that's when we give the feedback off. hey, this is not fraud and abuse that's resulted in increased code usage. It's appropriate code usage, except that it's been influenced by a, either A, new evidence, B, it's just change in clinical practice guidance. It's you know best practice that's been recognized and being adopted. So you are going to see an upward trend before it plateaus off. Sometimes you see codes getting flagged that are primarily our codes, for example, cognitive treatment codes. And then uh, you notice that the increased usage may not be by SLPs, it may be by OTs, it may be by neuropsych, others who can technically build a code. Um, and in that case, we also still want to know why someone else is now using that code, because now that has ramifications in terms of referrals to us and scope of practice. Or, Um, where are jobs going? So it's more than just about the code and the code values. So, um, it's, you know, it's always a process that's an evolution, uh, when it comes to what's changing, but for better or worse, we live in a for-profit healthcare system in America. So it's going to be driven by reinforcement reimbursement by the, for the foreseeable future. Um, so the, the business of healthcare is top of mind when, for policymakers and that's exactly what we try to influence.
1: Yeah, yeah, Awesome. Thank you. That was super helpful. There's a
2: lot of info down. Sorry. It was,
1: No, that was great. But I think people think you just sit and respond to angry emails. We do all day, that Monica, too. So <laughs> it's, it's still part of the end.
2: game, uh, right. <laughs> but every decision that's made at every level outside of that rehab gym is impactful for the clinicians serving our patients within that rehab gym. So um, it's when we kind of do what we do with that framework in mind, the emotion aspect of it goes out because you absolutely recognize why someone's upset because they're justified in that. And, you know, because the same things that, I know the heck out of them and i know the heck out of me when i walk into that gym so um but it is it is a you know complex process and like rightfully so because we appreciate the checks and balances that exist within the system and also from our members yeah, yeah i'd love to,
1: to talk a little bit more about you know sort of pdpm c- because i think we d- we haven't really been able to i guess sort of sit back and non-emotionally see how it's going for SLPs, only because i feel like covid kind of came in and stole the show. Uh, <laughs> so I feel like, you know, I, I at first was a big fan of PDPM because I think it really supported this whole value-based healthcare that we're sort of switching to, which I'm a fan of because I'm a fan of anything that gets back to the patient and is driven by the patient's values. And I think that's sort of where we've gotten steered off in the wrong direction and not for, good reasons. Um, So I'm very much the biggest supporter of complete evidence-based practice and using the evidence and using the clinical experience and using, you know, patient preference too. So I just, I, I get so, you know, sort of angry when people are like, well, the evidence says we have to do this, you know, and it's like, yes, it does. But this patient that's right in front of you, it's might not apply to that patient or that patient might not feel that way. So, I really just sort of was a fan of PDPM because I worked in these sort of corrupt sniff settings before where you just threw as many minutes at a patient as possible and you had to figure out how to fulfill that, you know, and it just wasn't fun. So, yeah, I'd I'd love to sort of just hear, you know, your take on PDPM and I think how we can sort of spin it to get SLPs to understand that this is a good thing for us and it wasn't meant to squash therapy minutes and it wasn't meant to take our jobs away.
2: You're absolutely right. Um, So the primary purpose of PDPM is to move towards value-based care, right? Take the focus off of the minutes. It's not about volume of services provided. It's all about patient outcomes. So, if you can achieve the same patient outcomes in five sessions versus 10, or you can change modes of service delivery and achieve the same outcome, let's do it. And the old RUGS4 model, it was all about volume. It didn't matter how many times they tweaked it. It came fundamentally down to volume. The other thing, the way RUG 4 was set up was also it was therapy was king. It was very heavily weighted towards rehab services, and it didn't factor in the complexity of a patient's presentation. So, it didn't matter how much nursing care needed to be added on to it. If they needed therapy, therapy brought the money in. So, there was always that incentive to rug someone at ultra-high because – Financially, that made it more profitable. So that's kind of why CMS had to go back to the basics to create a brand new system where everything from how you coded the patient, how you admitted them, start had to look fundamentally different. And you had to weigh in all of the care that patients were provided, but they're still that same pot of money. So if you had to start providing appropriate care weighing all of the disciplines care provision then it comes down to the money has to come from somewhere and in the money was it was intended to be a budget neutral system meaning they were going to just balance out where the money was spent and redirect any overutilization to appropriate utilization and we all As PTs, OTs, and SLPs recognized that there was massive overutilization, and that led to a lot of professional issues and steps, right? Uh, It was productivity challenges, it was pressures for documentation, it was picking up inappropriate patients. So now you needed to balance that out. But to meet the financial incentives under RUG 4, there was also in some ways an overemployment and over-utilization of SLP services or PT or OT services meant there was there were all of these PRN folks that were employed within the industry. Me, for one. And come PDPM, me said, you got no job because we don't have any extra fluff money to have you in to come and bill for these services. Um, so, the system was intended to write itself. And as with anything, there was there's typically a knee-jerk reaction and there's this overcorrection. Um, and the industry saw this when rugs were first implemented decade over a decade ago. So the snuff industry tried to correct for PDP and projected PDPM uh, impacts and um that led to job losses as the first line of defense for them. We did not appreciate it. We did not. We knew that that would be their knee-jerk reaction. Having lived through this a decade ago, we actively advocated, and we, being APTA, AOTA, and ASHA, actively advocated against it. With the trade association, with employers, we've had multiple, multiple conversations with therapy providers, with in-house SNFs, it's like, wait and see, see how you can utilize your clinicians, arm them to better serve your patients within the value-based model, as opposed to still fixating on the number and trying to say, okay, well now, I don't need all to generate these numbers, so let me let go of these clinicians. That just didn't, the math didn't add up in our heads, but also what we're learning from our conversations with the trade associations for SNPs is that um, you know they were massively hit by adjustments around PDPM. Like therapy companies had to renegotiate contracts with SNPs. So it massively diminished their profit margins, which meant they had to adjust somewhere. Not privy to the runnings of a rehab company, but, you know, what we continue to lobby for is let's use those clinicians appropriately. Let's get our SLPs in. The needs of the patients never changed because you got a new reimbursement model. The the same stroke survivor still comes under your SNP, has the same exact needs. If they had three hours of rehab needs, September 30th of 2019, they had the same rehab needs starting October 1st. So, you know, it's let's do right by our patients, but that also requires us, so now under PDPM, there's a lot of focus on intake admission coding. So you wanna make sure you capture all of your deficits, patient's deficits appropriately, right at the beginning. Um, so that's where we're really encouraging clinicians to tag team with their MDS coordinators, with nursing staff to make sure that those cognitive impairments, those modified diets are all appropriately captured. They may not be appropriately coded or, you know, Lord knows the number of people who come in on wrong diets when they get admitted to our SNFs. But that's exactly where you come to the table. You don't have to eval every new admit to determine that. But you go in and make that call for patients and make appropriate determinations. Mm -hmm. But with PDPM also came now this explosion of groups and concurrent, right? It's like all this while, until September 30th, groups were discouraged because they weren't, they didn't make financial sense. Personally, I'm a huge fan of groups when appropriate for some patients. And I don't think I've met a clinician who has disagreed with that uh, sentiment. Communication and eating are just social activities. So why not do it in a social context with meaningful goals? But it is absolutely not appropriate for everybody. It is, and especially some of our patients with most severe deficits, and you want to meet to group them with someone who's very mild, who I can't, it's not fair to either one of them for them to be in that group. It makes absolutely no sense. So I think our clinicians are facing an uphill battle in pushing back. And uh, we ask a lot of our members and SNFs Um, in all of our practice settings, but I know snuffs have been particularly challenging over the last couple of years. We say, go push back against productivity requirements. Go push back against inappropriate patients on your case. So push back against groups. So uh, being on the other side of it, and like hats off to every single one, one of you who's waging that battle so faithfully, it is not easy. It's a... Setting that is hugely undervalued by many people. But what can, you know, a question I ask anybody in a SNP who's talking to me is what can I do to help you fight that battle? Because I can't fight that battle, unfortunately, because they basically, they being the industry, turns around and tells the associations, you are a association, you recommend something. And they are not also our members, right, the employers. So anything that's a recommendation from ASHA, APTA, or AOTA is a recommendation for its own members who are the therapists. So the pushback and the fighting and the advocacy, unfortunately, has to happen on the ground. But we've got your back. Tell us what we can give you. You want numbers? You want data to support? Let's pull that up for you you want us to show you our recent survey trends or show you what reimbursement trends have been or claims look like or what CMS policy states, we will pull that out, reference it by line number and send that to you. Like, shoot us an email, call us. That's exactly what we're here for. We're partners with you in advocacy. And yes, PDPMs impact absolutely. Sucks. It's, but people who have been watching the industry, people who are smarter than me at these analyses, absolutely feel strongly that patient needs will continue to be served as PDPM evolves.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you, Monica. I want to just say thank you to you, like personally, because I think this was so helpful and so valuable. And I think I don't know that people felt this way about Asha, I think. And until once you've taken on this role, I you've you've done so much for clinicians just being in this role. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for letting us know that we can reach out, that that Asha is there to support us and not fight against us. And I don't know why it felt like that for so long. So I
2: I appreciate your uh, I appreciate your thoughts there. And, um, you know, it's. It's honestly like an army of people you've got behind you. Uh, There are, yes, ASHA staff, but we're a very small part of the army. Um, I think our strength comes from members who engage with us. And um, by engage, I don't mean that they're ASHA fans. I love the fact that people can hold us accountable right? We are a member organization and we are accountable. And I, I enjoy all of those interactions and so does my team. And, but outside of ASHA's staff, you have all of these volunteer leaders um, who actually choose to invest in doing exactly this. Like if there is a way you want to get engaged with ASHA, let's find a way for you to do it uh, with whatever amount of time or resources you have at your disposal. But I also know that that sentence comes from a place of privilege, right? Because it assumes that you have time and resources at your disposal, you can invest back in the organization. And I realize there are people, especially speaking of PDPM, who now have to piece together four SNF jobs to meet the full-time hours. And you're certainly not going home at the end of the day to say, how can I help Asha? (laughs) And I absolutely appreciate that. But that's where the rest of us come alongside and support you. It takes a village and there there will be a day and time when you may be able to contribute. And to me, that contribution can be shooting an email to say, hey, I'm finding this. I'm serving these rural areas. This continues to be a challenge. How can you move the needle for us? You have no idea How helpful that is for me because I can take that to not just build resources that live on a website, but that can kick off a whole advocacy channel. I can I have now real stories from a clinician who's been impacted by a policy. So your engagement with Asha can be as simple as that, but you know, it's everything takes time. It took us 20 years of advocacy before we repealed the therapy caps that lumped us in with PT. So most of us don't have the luxury of 20 years in a career to <laughs> wait for that. So I also, I understand the frustration because as a clinician, I deeply feel it. Um, but that's also what motivates all of us here at ASHA to do better, do better for our members and do better for ourselves who are part of the profession.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Absolutely. Happy to help. Yeah. Gosh. I, any final thoughts? I mean, I think we covered a lot of great stuff. Just, I'm happy to be here. My team is um, fantastic. Couldn't do a thing without them. But and if you guys want to reach out, you can always call the Asha Action Center ask them to loop you into the uh, healthcare team. Okay. Uh, you can also directly email us. We, we're at healthservices at asha.org, easy enough to reach us. Uh, and you can also email me. It's my first initial last name at asha.org. So it's msampson at asha.org. If I don't know the answer, I will find somebody who can give you the answer and uh, which will most probably be the case. But I just, you know, I want to thank you for taking the time for us to chat about this. And again, if there's any way we can come alongside medical SLPs, let us know.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Monica. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: This was wonderful. Thanks. Really appreciate the opportunity to chat, Teresa.
1: To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.